And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. I'm so happy to be with you here today on this Friday, September 16th, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. And welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today. Every every uh, every other Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, like I said, noon Pacific Standard Time. And uh, each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context of our relationships, relationships that we have with ourselves. In other words, who are we? Deep down inside, really, who are we? And our relationships with others, our interpersonal relationships, which could be our personal relationships with others or professional relationships and our relationship with God or the divine. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I just want you to visit our website. It is www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. That's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And just in case you cannot spend the full hour with me or you want to go back into the archives and uh, uh, catch some additional uh, shows, you may do so because uh, they are podcasted. And you can go back into, like I said, the website and listen to perhaps any shows that you had missed or that you didn't have a chance to spend the full hour with me. And I certainly appreciate that. And I just wanted to say before we get started today that um, I just want to say just a special thank you for all who have been supporting me over the past year and would like to say now that you have the opportunity, if you want to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, just a little caveat regarding that is that uh, monthly prescription uh, subscription is not required to listen to these uh, broadcasts, but it is greatly appreciated. So again, all you need to do is just go on the website and you'll see where it says, you know, uh, sponsoring or get a, a subscription and you can choose any amount that you feel comfortable giving. Well, let's see. Um, I always like to start off um, these podcasts just by uh, kind of reminding people who I am and and, uh, different beliefs that I have, just to kind of bring everybody up on, you know, the same uh, speed and the same page. Um, because this all ties together, uh, these, uh, these shows, these broadcasts, uh, because I certainly have a, a solid belief that all of us come into the world already equipped and graced with everything we need for this life in terms of our giftedness, our skills, our talents, our strengths, our character traits, and et cetera, et cetera, and how we live out our giftedness and skills and talents is in and through 
various relationships. And it doesn't really matter who you are because you you have the the gifts and skills already lying in you. Perhaps you're aware of a few of them already. Perhaps, you know, if you want to dig a little deeper into yourself, you may find certain gifts and talents and strengths that have just been lying dormant, just waiting to come up. You never know. But that is the part of reclaiming authenticity and helping people discover who they are. And yet, when you think about it, because we are in various relationships with um, uh, you know, one another and so forth, uh, this is often where we receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual wounds in and through those relationships. And, you know, sometimes we go along in life and maybe due to some unpleasant experiences, we may tend to hide that giftedness, or we may tend to hide those skills or those talents and strengths uh, just for out of fear of being ridiculed or shamed or whatever. Or we might push our giftedness way down so that other people cannot see it. Or perhaps uh, maybe growing up, you were told that you would never amount to anything or whatever other voice you heard telling you that there's nothing special to you. And that's just wrong. There's just whoever was saying that to you just had no right to because we can discover oftentimes our greatest healing, strength, peace, and forgiveness and love through healthier relationships. And we can rediscover, or shall I say, reclaim our skills, our talents, our strengths, our character traits, and so forth. But, you know, the irony in all this is that as we're talking about relationships and the wounding in relationships and so forth, that um, sometimes we don't need to look any further. Uh, Sometimes these relationships just might be within our own families. They just might be within our own coworkers and friends. Because when we transform, we also transform others by our presence, by our grace, by our understanding. But first, forgiveness, kindness, and compassion begin with how we treat ourselves. Because whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we then can be compassionate with others. And when we are forgiving with ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with somebody else. And when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves and just that tremendous um, thankfulness that just comes from a depth in our hearts, we then discover how this really opens up our hearts even more to see and live in gratitude with others. So all in all, first and foremost, transformation begins with us, but then it extends out like a rippling effect that just captures all our relationships. So how is your heart today on this fine Friday, the 16th? I hope it is well, and I hope you are well. I hope that if you are struggling today, you will find rest and comfort and the peace that you need. Well, welcome to today's broadcast entitled, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, Dissolving Ignorance of Who We Think We Are. And um, especially in speaking of 
um, how and why we may have pushed our giftedness way down inside of us so that others cannot see it, or believing those messages of being told we would never amount to anything. Uh, today's show focuses on the illusion of just how these negative beliefs that, you know, eventually convince us. Um, how it even just furthers, you know, the illusion or the disillusionment of us being tied to issues such as self-loathing, self-defeating, and learn helplessness behaviors. And yet, all we have to do is awaken to the truth that ultimately we are all souls. And we learn to walk in a gratitude of peace and love and bliss. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story that uh, my Indian friends love to tell me. It is right out of the Vedantas. And um, there's something that uh, really drives home this message of who told you that you were tied to all these negative aspects and these negative beliefs? Who told you? Okay, and it all has to uh, come through a story of a donkey who was convinced that he was tied to a tree. So, first of all, let's take a, just a quick look at donkeys. You know, um, they're not so dumb as people might think they are. In fact, they've often been held in high esteem as more than just beasts of burden you know, or as symbols of service or suffering and peace and humility. But they are also associated with the theme of wisdom. And because of this theme, donkeys have been many characters in stories because they have a way of holding up, uh, shall we say, a proverbial mirror in order to teach us something about ourselves. So, yes, in, in biblical times, uh, a donkey is mentioned about 142 times throughout the Bible and five times in the Quran. And many people uh, rode on donkeys. Some people even had their own personal donkey. Uh, for others, they had to go down to their friendly neighborhood enterprise, shall we say, or budget rental agencies and rent a donkey, not with the promise that uh, they would return the animal in good working condition. But ironically, kings also owned and rode on donkeys. And several people uh, that are recorded as riding donkeys also owned horses. Okay. And many folks today will tell you that horses were only used in war. However, so as not to draw attention to themselves, donkeys were used while traveling as well. And I'm sure, you know, in most more recent stories, such as in the Winnie the Pooh books, Eeyore is that famous donkey. He's, a, he's that miserable, pessimistic donkey who spends all his time wallowing around his riverbank, worrying and complaining and complaining and worrying. And the other character animals constantly look out for him and try to brighten his mood, you know, like, uh, let's say, Winnie the Pooh or Piglet or even Tigger. But he tends to question their motives and express skepticism about their plans. Now, as a result, he doesn't recognize so much or appreciate the effort they actually put into helping him. I mean, he is, his pessimism is so extreme 
that it's often ridiculous and darkly humorous. For instance, once he complains that nobody cares enough about him uh, to knock over his house. Uh, and, you know, it's like, well, it's not that big of a house, and therefore it wouldn't be that big of a deal if anybody knocked it over. So all in all, Eeyore is the quintessential Debbie Downer. But, you know, it is through this character that the message comes through that that people can't, you know, be wise or achieve happiness or grow as individuals unless, like Pooh, they learn to accept the world for what it is and embrace their own weaknesses and affirm the value and beauty in their life. And yet there's so much more to those stories. That's why they're so classics. So without further ado, let me share with you the story of the washerman and the donkey. Well, once upon a time, as all great stories start off with, once upon a time, there was a man who lived hundreds of years ago. And being a simple man, his occupation was that of what they called a washerman, one who goes around the town and collects people's dirty laundry. Then he would load them on his donkey, uh, take them down to the river, washes the laundry, lays them out on large rocks to dry, and then he folds the laundry and returns it to his customers at the end of the day. And, and he did this day in and day out. Okay. Well, one day when he was collecting the laundry and taking it down to the river to wash them, he realized he had forgotten the rope to which he would tie the donkey to a tree so that it would not run off while he was washing the laundry. And he was so beside himself because if he had to go back to his house and get the rope, he would lose a whole day's wage. And he just didn't know what to do. And he was just like, you know, what am I going to do? I can't, I don't know, can't believe I forgot the rope and everything and just all beside himself. And as he was standing there, not knowing what to do, uh, a wise old man walked by and just asked him if, if you know, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the washerman explained the situation to this man about forgetting his rope and he couldn't tie his donkey and he couldn't go home to get it because he would lose a whole day's wage and so on and so forth. And the wise old man just simply smiled and he said, sir, don't worry. I have an idea. Just pretend to tie the donkey to this tree. Well, okay, okay, but what do you mean just pretend? Yes, just pretend to go through the motions of tying your donkey to the tree. Only make sure he sees you do this. Well, as ridiculous as it sounded, the washerman did just that. He pretended to tie his donkey to the tree, making sure the donkey was watching him. Then he took his laundry down to the river, and he began to wash it. And every now and then, the washerman would look back over his shoulder at the tree just to see what the donkey was doing. The donkey was still there. He was still eating grass and acting as if it is tied to the tree. It was perfectly content. And when the washerman finished with his laundry for the day, he loaded up his donkey and commanded the donkey to move. 
but the donkey did not move. In fact, it acted as if it had been tied to the tree all along. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go anywhere, said the donkey. Uh, now, the washerman thought he was really in a bind now because he couldn't get his donkey to move. How's he going to, you know, go back through the town and deliver people's laundry? And he, again, is going to lose money and so forth. So he, you know, quickly runs and he finds the the wise old man who told him to pretend that he was tying his donkey to the tree in the first place. And eventually he found this man. He explained the situation that now the donkey refused to move because it thinks it is still tied to the tree. Well, the old man listened, smiled, and he said to the washerman that no worries. There's an easy solution. Just as you pretended to tie the donkey to the tree, now you just simply need to pretend to untie the donkey from the tree. Only make sure that the donkey watches you do this. So the washerman, you know, shakes his head and like, okay, here we go again. But the washerman goes back to the donkey and starts to pretend he's untying the donkey. And he made sure, of course, the donkey was watching him. Then with a stern voice, he commanded his donkey to move, and then he and the donkey started to walk back home. Now, on the surface, we might think to ourselves that the donkey in the story was just plain stupid. You know, being tricked into thinking that it was tied when actually it was not. Because when you think about it, all the washermen did was simply go through the motions of tying and untying his donkey, which in this story actually worked. And, you know, my friends in India have often used this story to demonstrate how the Vedanta scriptures say how this story exemplifies classic human behavior. They say, we think that we are the body, the mind, the intellect, and these things need to be nurtured. Or, It is our duty to provide the desired and pampering of these things. And a man is working day and night to meet these needs, running after various temptations and so forth, because most people think that if they do not nurture the body, they will die. And rightly so. So we have to put restrictions around ourselves. But like that donkey, humanity thinks It's in this kind of servitude or bondage. In other words, humanity does not know that we're not the body, the mind, the intellect. We're independent. There are no restrictions on us, no bondages. And even if so, the body dies, we will not die. We're eternal. Vedanta tells humanity that the body and the soul are not one. They're different. We are so limited in our understanding that we are bound by what we see and feel and hear and taste and touch, that we think that this is all that there is. And so we, like the donkey, end up believing the illusion that we're limited or restricted simply because we were told by another that we are. Unfortunately, we take that on as our identity. 
and we act accordingly, believing that this is as good as it's going to get. But you know, I see this quite a bit in counseling people who identify themselves with solely their problems or their illnesses. They're not aware of being more than what they have become so far in life. So they often accept the distorted template that has been laid over top of their lives. And as a result, people tend to beat themselves up for making the same mistakes over and over again in their choices, their relationships, and life. Yet, in this story, the donkey that is free all the time thinks that it's tied. You know, similarly, on a metaphysical level, we who are souls believe we are tied to the body. Our soul is captive, and, and that seems to be the concrete truth. And at a physical level, we are bound to an endless desire to acquire things. And we focus things on things like beauty and spiritual experiences and knowledge and wealth and fame and success, as well as the enjoyment of these acquired objects as, and the avoidance of negative things in our lives, such as bad relationships or financial problems, etc. And as a result, we believe that there has to be a key out there somewhere that we need to find to unlock our prison. And so we go in search of a key, so to speak, that could be in the form of, well, I need to make more money. I need to have uh, personal freedom. I need to find true passion or true love or any other desire. But what if we start with the premise that we're already free? What if there is no rope, no tree? What if the illusion of being in prison is the illusion? Now, I don't want to come across as one who minimizes another person's pain or problems or struggles. But how might we be empowered if we saw ourselves as the solutions to our problems? by removing the layers of conditioning, or let's say, in this case, the imaginary ropes that keep us tied to our problems. What keeps us bound to toxic relationships? What keeps us thinking that there is nothing more to us because we've been told this about ourselves all of our lives? You know, my teacher is often fond of saying that most people think that any kind of undesirable situation is due to the behavior of others. In other words, most people do not want to accept responsibility for their own thoughts or their own words or even their own actions. And furthermore, perspective is clearly the result of the mind's doing. It's simply caused by the weakness of the mind and the absorption of negative thoughts. So, for example, <clears throat> if you think you are weak, you will become weak. And if you think yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, as a victim, then you will become a victim. But if you think yourself strong, then you are strong. But it's unfortunate that most people have accepted their inner weakness to the point that they are attached to them. 
they don't want to come out of their self-created illusions. All the more reason why we have to be careful with our thoughts, for they carry a lot of weight. We all have not just have to be careful with our thoughts, but also our words and our deeds. In fact, um, how many of you out there are aware that a single thought, just a single thought, can generate about four volts of energy, not to mention everything else that our brains send energy signals to? Four volts of energy per thought. Yeah, compare that to a double A or a triple A battery. Um, now they hold about 1.5 volts, but a single thought can generate, you know, about four volts of energy. Now, when we speak our thoughts, that number jumps from four volts of energy to about 40 volts or 10 times the amount. And again, let's put this into perspective that the amount of voltage required to start a car from its battery is about 12.6. And yet, can you see what happens, just a single thought, whenever we speak on it, just how it is amplified, how it is increased? And this could be positive thought, or it could be a negative thought. You know, basically, our brains run on uh, chemical energy from uh, adenosphin trisophate. And just like other parts of the body, we know many of the things it does in the brain. And apparently, uh, the biggest thing it does is run, should we say, the molecular pumps that simultaneously pump sodium out of the neuron and potassium in it, creating and maintaining a chemical gradient across the neuron cell memory and so forth. But, um, and so there is just a tremendous amount of a chemical energy exchange, but just a single thought, four volts of energy. So let's say that we take that single thought that we have, and it could be a positive thought, it could be a negative thought. But let's just say we take that single thought and we write it down on paper and we look at it. And we write about, where did that come from? What in me created this thought? What's the context? And so forth. Whenever we do that, it jumps to about 50 times more. It's, that is a significant amount of energy, which not only goes for negative thoughts, but again, also to positive thoughts as well. So we can think our thoughts and that's one aspect of energy. But whenever we speak our thoughts, that's an increase in that energy. But whenever we write down our thoughts, it increases to 50, per, 50 times more. All the more reason to be careful with our thoughts. But, you know, maybe by looking at ourselves more closely and examining our motives and assumptions and limited perspectives, we just might realize the first step towards lasting transformation is to acknowledge the illusion of oppression is, is all in our minds. In other words, we might be in a physical prison per se, but if we find our true nature, that we are eternal souls, then no amount of an earthly limitation can convince us that we are limited or inadequate or restricted. 
I have several conversations with my Indian friends over the years, and uh, my uh, Indian friends and I discuss several matters on spirituality, action, and actually mental health. And my Indian friends understand that people are already in a relationship with all things and all people, including God, but they just don't know it yet. You know, for them, it's just a matter of waking up. It's a matter of bringing about an awareness and so forth. It's a matter of realizing that we all are souls and our souls are vast and formless. In fact, I've I've talked with my friends in India, and we have an interesting conversations about sin and ignorance. And whereas others see sin as people are being bad or evil, they believe that people act out of their ignorance of who they are, and therefore they commit evil acts because they themselves have not realized who they are and others as souls. You know, in Western spirituality, the concept of sin tells people that they are wrong or they have done something wrong and therefore need to eliminate the sin in order to be in a right relationship with God and others. And for us, regardless of religion, it's a matter of understanding how we live our lives with, shall we say, superimposed notions or distorted templates that we are all just simply bodies and minds. You know, yes, we have bodies and minds, but we believe this is all there is to us and that someday we'll get to go to heaven. But I've even seen this in Christianity, that people are afraid to walk in the newness of life, shall we say, because they still believe they're tied to the tree. And this is what it means to move into highest spiritual dimension relationship with God. And yes, we have to contend with living in a 3D world, but we are so limited where all we have to do is realize our freedom. I mean, didn't Jesus once say that the kingdom of God is within you? We just haven't realized it yet. Perhaps we just don't know how to embrace it, let alone walk in the newness of life and relationship. But you know, what a difference it would make in our lives and the lives of humanity if we see the illusion for what it is, and we untie the limitations of the donkey mind, we dissolve the ignorance of who we are, And we walk in the freedom that has always been within. Well, I'd really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you'd like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Halk. Be back with you in one minute.
Welcome back. <clears throat> I am Dr. James Hauk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, earlier in the show, I was uh, talking about a story that is often used to demonstrate how a donkey that is free all the time think that it's tied to a tree. And similarly, on a metaphysical level, shall we say, we who are souls believe we are tied to the body and everything that comes with it. You know, our soul is captive, and that seems to be the concrete truth. And at a physical level, we are bound to an endless desire to acquire things, such as, let's say, beauty or different spiritual experiences, or we take pride in our knowledge or wealth or fame and success, as well as the enjoyment of everything that we've acquired and the avoidance of negative things in our lives, such as bad relationships, financial problems, and so forth, which, rightly so, we should. And as a result, we are convinced that we have to find this key out of this prison, that maybe the key is, well, we should be making more money or have a different kind of freedom or passion, or if we could only find true love or any other desire. But, you know, what if we are already free and we just don't know it yet? What if we imagine that we're not really in a prison? And I don't mean to belittle anyone's problems, um, you know, but how often have we talked about solving our problems by removing the layers of conditioning or the imaginary ropes that tie us to our problems? And maybe looking at ourselves more closely and examining our motives and assumptions and perspectives, we can find answers to the questions such as, what keeps us bound to toxic relationships? What keeps us thinking that there's nothing more to us because we've been told this about ourselves all throughout our lives? And herein lies a great lesson to be learned regarding recognizing who we are as souls. Because you see, on this level, there are illusions that have been superimposed that we all are, you know, just this particular body with a set of feelings and thoughts and taking in the external world around us through our senses. And ours is a world whereby we're familiar with superimposed images all the time. You know, basically to superimpose an image means to place or lay, you know, over or above something or another image. Now, photographers are well familiar with this term, and they may even use this technique all the time, okay? But it's an illusion. It's, it's a superimposition, okay? And the, even in the world of music, you know, uh, when recording, it's called overdubbing which is also known as layering, which is a technique used in which audio tracks that have been pre-recorded are then played back and incorporated into another track. So which one is the real music? And we, we, we often lose the perspective and we believe that the real thing is that which has been superimposed. Okay. So when we believe that there is nothing more to us than a body and a mind, or that we define ourselves according to our wounds, 
or scars or experiences, we're reinforcing this template or superimposition of this illusion. Okay? Now, removing this illusion and realizing the underlying reality is called de-superimposition. Okay? And one of my favorite stories um, is looking for the butter in every bowl of milk. Yeah, it might be a strange title for a story. But when you think about it, when you go to the grocery store, most people have on their list to buy milk, butter, and cheese. And of course, there are other dairy products such as yogurt, cottage cheese, and so forth. But have you ever stopped to take a closer look at a glass of milk? Well, as you're looking at that glass of milk, are you able to see the butter and cheese that is already in it? Okay. Look, take a, next time you take a look at a glass of milk, before you drink it down, look at it. And are you able to see the butter and the cheese that's already in there? And it's true. Butter and cheese does exist in milk. But where is it? You know, it cannot be perceived, but it's present everywhere in milk, in each and every drop of milk. There is no particle of milk where butter or ghee is not present. And this is a great analogy for how we're able to see God and the potential in ourselves and others in everyday life. Well, little did I realize after hearing this story for the first time, just how important it is to understand that the presence of God or the divine can be seen in everyone especially our, in ourselves, in every day. On the surface, we might find this teaching difficult, because whenever we look at ourselves or when we look at others, perhaps all we see is so much physical pain or emotional wounds or psychological suffering or expressions of anger and violence and lust and jealousy and brokenness and so on and so on. But can we also see the potential for God's presence to transform these wounds into a life-giving means of creating the healing that we truly want to see in this world? In other words, can we see the potential for the milk to be transformed into butter? And let alone, how can we transform dimensions of higher spiritual awareness? Do we see that potential in ourselves? Do we see ourselves as more than just the body? Do we see ourselves as souls which are limitless and vast? Yet how many times do we struggle with seeing God in this world because we're unwilling or unable to shift our focus? And let's be honest, you know, perhaps we are too busy to quiet ourselves to listen for God's still small voice. Or let's just take this one step further. How many times do we wrongly assume that in order to see God, we must first make God conform to our vision, our philosophy, our worldview, our prayers? In other words, that if God wants a relationship with me, then it will have to be on my terms. And this is simply not the case. You see, God is not akin to the genie in Aladdin's lamp, 
we don't obtain these things simply by rub- rubbing the spiritual lamp, hoping to get three wishes. So how do we see God more clearly or love God more dearly or follow God more nearly each day? Well, let me propose this idea. And perhaps before we ask the question, how, perhaps a better question would be for us to first understand from where inside of our soul do these desires come? See, perhaps the desire to see and love and follow God more closely actually comes from a deep place in us that words cannot express. See, as we heal from our psychological and emotional and physical and spiritual wounds, we begin to look at ourselves and others differently. And this is a very, very good beginning. However, when we're able to see what we are truly made of, that is, light and soul, we begin to understand the true meaning of seeing the butter and cheese in the bowl of milk. It may not be there at first glance, but as we develop our relationship with God or the divine, we heal from our woundedness. And here's the irony in all this. When we are truly able to see ourselves as souls, and ultimately when we are able to realize um, others as souls, and we begin to see, we're no longer willing to accept relating to people as anything less than also being a soul. And how many times do we hear and see people calling for an end to violence and crime and poverty? And interestingly, humanity has always struggled with these issues. But you know, it has never looked for the answers in the right places. Because all too often, you know, has the focus been on the externals that has often caused such division in humanity since the beginning of, let's say, measured time. And it is the externals that have produced the isms in the world today. You know, sexism, and racism, ageism, classism, egoism, and so forth. But you know, when we focus on the soul of a person, all of these isms fall away. They simply cannot follow the language of the soul because the soul is always found by first looking inward. And when we do that, we realize that there is no more sexism. There's no more racism. There is no more ageism. There is no more egoisms. Because isms do not have a voice in matters of the soul. Because we're all beautiful souls made in the image of God, full of inherent value and dignity and worth. Yet we may struggle to accept this truth because our attention is often diverted to focus solely on outward appearances and behaviors. In other words, we all live with some degree of ignorance of our soul consciousness. And we may get glimpses of it here and there, but do we ever fully attain it? Because let's say the physical, emotional, and psychological issues cloud our vision of who we truly are. 
And for example, <laughs> diseases and illnesses do afflict us in the body. Okay, we do feel physical and emotional pain with so much intensity at times that we believe that they're going to break us in two. And at times, our lungs may struggle to take a breath, or hunger and disease causes our stomachs and intestines, bones and muscles to scream in agony. And these experiences just might make us question whether or not we're the soul whom God has created. And yet, this illusion lies not in the suffering, pain, and agony we experience, but rather it's in our perception that there's nothing more to us than an emotional, intellectual, and physical body. Indeed, physical and emotional pain and suffering can temporarily drown out the cry of the soul, but our soul is never silenced. And furthermore, the truth is that the greatest strength of who we are as souls lies in our ability to transform and transcend physical, emotional, and psychological limitations. And for as much as history has shown us the, or the horrific crimes humanity does to itself, there are just as many stories of humanity rising above such tragedies to heal and reclaim their soul. Because, you know, despite our perceived differences in race and language or religion and culture, there is uh, a common Native American expression that emphasizes uh, interconnectedness among all that we see, uh, namely, matakio oesen, all are related. And this phrase is understood by the Lakota Sioux people as an expression extending to all of creation. Everything that is humanity, animals, vegetation, minerals, elements, land, water, thunder, fire, wind, sun, moon, stars, etc., are connected to one another and affect one another. But you know, for far too long, humanity has been influenced by the what's-in-it-for-me scenarios. And as much as we can become enthralled by, let's say, our gifts and our giftedness and our skills and our talents and so forth that I uh, you know, uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, we have to remember that our talents and our skills and our blessings and knowledge and wisdom are not necessarily for ourselves, because these are gifts for the benefit of somebody else, for others. And reclaiming our authenticity really compels us now to ask, how can I use these things to serve humanity? How can I alleviate suffering? How can I speak up for those who do not have a voice? And this is what authenticity is really all about. But, you know, some people might say that they are just simply content being who they are. But I think we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, you know, am I being authentic today? Am I being honest and genuine in my relationships? You know, why are we waiting till we are retired, whenever that will be, to do what we've always dreamed of doing? I mean, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting to have all of our bills paid? We're having enough money in the bank. 
I mean, too many people play the, well, I'll get around to it someday, while vulnerable and wounded people are in need right now. And see, such hurting people need others to see in them the potential for them to also live authentically, including the benefit of reclaiming authenticity. Perhaps people believe that they have too much to lose to be authentic. Perhaps they do not know or fear that people will not accept them as they are if they find their authentic voice. Perhaps they have a fear of of rejection or, or being ridiculed or shamed or ostracized or shunned. You know, the Native Americans have a saying passed down from ancient times that the strength of a tree comes not from growing thicker in the good years when there is water, but from staying alive in the bad, dry times. And trust me, we live in a time when, as we are focused on the virtue of stewardship, the one gift that we need to foster and treasure is the gift of ourself, our inner life, our spirit of resiliency. There is great value in reclaiming our authenticity because we do find an inner freedom and a strength and a peace and assurance of who we are without giving away our uniqueness, playing by somebody else's rules and definitions and expectations. For some, finding their inner strength to stand on their own two feet further empowers them to reach out for better relationships or better jobs or more, you know, more involved justice. Indeed, those who are authentic often find God's blessings. And I believe this is where the next great spiritual awakening will come from, finding the strength to reclaim our own authenticity. But you know, there's a, there's a common expression out there that cuts across all generations and races, even is that, you know, we reap what we sell. And many agricultural societies understand this concept better than others who have never put a seed in the ground, so to speak. And if you have good soil and good seed, enough water and sun and care, then a healthy crop will be produced. You know, the Chinese have a saying that uh, if a man plants melons, he will reap melons. If he sows beans, he will reap beans. In other words, Every action will produce an outcome or a consequence or a reward. And yet, there's another way to express this same idea in terms of character. And it's from an old Cherokee teaching that goes like this. One evening, an old Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that goes in, on inside of people. He says, my son... The battle is between two wolves inside of us all. One is evil. It's angry, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. 
The grandson thought about this for a minute, and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? The old Cherokee smiled and replied to his grandson, it's the one you feed. Certainly, that which we feed, you know, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, grows to produce more of the same. And this concept is true, whether we're referring to agriculture or our own human desires. Still, another way of understanding this reality of of cause and effect is through the symbol of the cornucopia. That is, that that time-honored symbol of abundance, long associated with thanksgiving. And certainly, we live in a time when this is truer than ever before. I mean, the choices are ours. What are we going to feed? If we feed in authenticity, then we're simply just going to get more of the same. But if we feed genuineness, we're going to get more of this. And once we understand this teaching, the blame game starts and stops with us. Are we going to be content to just simply throw up our hands and fatalistically say, well, that's just the way the world is, nothing I can really do about it? Or do we realize that one simple act of kindness, love, and authenticity sends out ripples of energy, ripples of transformation that will walk, wash back ashore to us? And we've been given tremendous power with our thoughts perhaps too much power at times, because without authenticity of the self, that power is dangerous, as history has shown us. And on the other hand, with authenticity comes a correct use of power, tempered with wisdom and grace for the betterment of all. And reclaiming our authenticity means we now have the capacity to change, the power to be that which has yet to be realized. And when we experience this this psycho-spiritual transformation, we catch a glimpse of the beginning of something greater than ourselves with the unlimited potential for life in everything that we do. I am Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thanks for sharing this hour with me. I look forward to our, our time again. But in the meantime... May you be safe, may you um, be uh, loving, and may you, above all, behave yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.